0: Hello and welcome back to The Hated and the Dead with Tom Lehman. I'm really excited about all of you listening to this episode, because today's subject is probably the most controversial leader discussed on the series so far. Muammar Gaddafi, the leader of Libya between 1969 and 2011, is one of the most idiosyncratic and recognisable politicians of the last 50 years. Gaddafi's love for theatrics is noticeable by reciting his full title as Libyan leader, Colonel Gaddafi, Chairman of the Revolutionary Command Council and Brotherly Leader of the Revolution of Libya. Though Gaddafi is often regarded as a joke, his modern image of power-crazy tyrant, parodied by Sacha Baron Cohen and others, conceals an earlier political sophistication. Gaddafi was in fact genuinely popular in the 1970s for his anti-imperialist stance. However, his early image as an anti-Western crusader and protector of Libyans waned in the 2000s, and in 2011, a full-scale revolution gripped Libya during the wider Arab Spring, and Gaddafi was sordidly murdered by his own people. Overall, I came to the end of the conversation you're about to hear of the opinion that Gaddafi, despite his many faults, doesn't deserve to be hated. My guest for today's conversation is Professor Tim Niblock. Emeritus Professor at the University of Exeter. Tim has written a wide range of books about the Middle East and is one of the foremost experts on Libyan politics in Europe. He met Colonel Gaddafi during the 1990s, as he reveals towards the end of our discussion. We discuss Gaddafi's early political inspiration, his relationship with the West, his alleged involvement in the Lockerbie bombing, and his grisly demise. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time to introduce Muammar Gaddafi. Morning, Tim. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. The subject of our conversation today is Muammar Gaddafi. Gaddafi's rule, Tim, is remarkable, if nothing else, because of its longevity. He was in power in Libya for 42 years, from 1969 until 2011. It's easy to get lost when reading about him because of this. He was born in 1942. Details of his early life are quite scant. His family were Bedouin nomads, I believe, who didn't keep very many written records. What anecdotes do we have about his childhood?
1: Uh, well, indeed, we, we know that he grew up in a nomadic environment. He uh, then was able to go to school in the nearest city, and he did work well at school uh, and went on to military college from there. Uh, he was known at, at school uh, and in the military college as being... Someone with radical kinds of ideas, uh, an activist, um, to some extent. Uh, <clears throat> when when he was in military college, this was of course during under the monarchy, and one would have thought that that was a problem to the military leadership and to the system. Uh, but in practice, um, I think he would, probably was not taken very seriously. Uh, his ideas, uh, I think, were seen as being rather out on a limb. Um, he wasn't a senior officer. He, he, um, he was down uh, when he became uh, when he went into the army. And I think uh, the leadership sort of tolerated him um, because he didn't seem to pose any direct threat to them.
0: Let's talk about Gaddafi's early political ideas, A bit then. He's at school the first time that he reads about President Nasser, the Mm -hmm. Egyptian leader who has quite a big effect on the young Gaddafi. Uh, They actually went on to meet later when they were both leaders of their respective countries. And I think Nasser didn't pay him a great deal of attention. He thought he was quite naive. Um, Can you introduce the figure of Nasser and explain why to Arabs like Gaddafi and Saddam Hussein to some extent, um, NASA became an important figure.
1: NASA, of course, by this time, in 1969, uh, was the acknowledged leader, if you like, of the Arab world. Um, and there had been the defeat uh, of Egypt in the 1967 war, uh, and to begin with, it looked as if that was going to bring to an end Nasser's career or Nasser's presidency, he resigned as president. Um, But then the tremendous reaction from the Egyptian population, the thousands and indeed millions of people who came out onto the streets, uh, forced him, if you like, to come back as leader. So although um, his room for manoeuvre internationally had been reduced as a result of the 1967 war, he remained tremendously popular uh, in the Arab world. Some people think that Arab nationalism sort of comes to an end in 1967, but it certainly doesn't. Uh, it remained very strong. From my own memory, I was uh, in Sudan. I was a lecturer at the University of Khartoum in, in 1969 and through to 1977. I remember when NASA came on a visit to Sudan, uh, a lot of people had been saying beforehand well he's he's past his prime now, he's no longer so popular. Um, but I remember being part of the crowd which was along the roads welcoming him, and it was absolutely uh, it was tremendously live uh, and he had a had a very warm welcome uh, and people re- did really believe in him. And so Gaddafi, in this respect, was no different from uh, many people of that generation, many young Arabs at that time in the 1960s. Nasser, of course, himself died in 1970. So Gaddafi and Nasser did not actually have all that all that long a time in which both were um, heads of state at the same time.
0: Um, indeed yeah um can you define arab nationalism a bit more because it might sound a little anachronistic to some people given that the arabs are not a not a a, a nation in the way that we think of them today uh well
1: uh, a lot of arabs of course do think of themselves as a nation yeah um, yeah and uh, a potential na- nation state, uh, um, but uh, and and at that time, it seemed um, a realist. Uh, well, let's say, let's say a much more realistic kind of proposition. Arabs uh, spoke the same language, and speak the same language. These, in terms of its, its basis, there's a lot of uh, commonality in terms of culture. Uh, there's a the prominent role of Islam, although not Islam by itself, of course. Um, other religions are present, um, and to many Arabs at that time as today, the concept of being part of an uh, of a of an Arab nation, if you like, uh, was and is perhaps more real than being part of the country which they're born into. Uh, countries which often were created uh, as a result of uh, the machinations between Britain and France in the First World War, or perhaps as a result of uh, French colonization in Northwest Africa. So Arab nationalism at that time was certainly linked with the idea of some kind of political unity and one had had the attempts at political unity between Egypt and Syria, and indeed Yemen, uh, in the early 1960s, uh, which had come apart. There was still this kind of idea uh, that Arabs should come together politically uh, into a a common common political framework of whatever kind. Arab nationalism is still uh, a live force today, Uh, even though it doesn't express itself through the desire for one unitary state, usually.
0: This is the the context in which Gaddafi comes to power in Libya. He comes to power in Libya in 1969 as a a coup d'etat in which the the king uh, Idris um, is overthrown whilst he's on holiday in, in Turkey. Given the misery that had been inflicted upon Libya and much of the Arab world by the imperial powers, by France, by Britain, by Italy in the case of of Libya. Um, Do you think that at the time, a sort of Arab nationalist revolution within Libya and lots of these other countries was fundamentally a change for the better? Because it was a, a, a movement that would allow Libya to ostensibly govern itself, to take control of its own resources, and to become a proper independent country?
1: Well, it was certainly seen in that light by large numbers of Libyans and large numbers of other uh, other Arabs. It was seen as, as being uh, a stage of liberation. Uh, Libya, of course, under the monarchy, was very closely linked with the United States and with Britain. There was this large American military base, the Wheelers military base, uh, close to Tripoli. Uh, And actually, when one talks about a base, you think of something which is contained maybe in small. This is something which which, uh, uh, occupied a large part of the coastline uh, to the east of Tripoli. Uh, And over in eastern Libya, the British also had very substantial bases. Um, So um, uh, among the younger generation at that time, uh, I think the spirit of nationalism, whether a strictly kind of Libyan nationalism or a wider Arab nationalism, was very strong. So, and that's indeed one reason why Gaddafi could go unnoticed, if you like, by the military command. And his views were similar to the views of many others uh, of his generation. And Gaddafi indeed really built up his position uh, on young people. Um, the kind of organizations which developed the re- revolutionary uh, committees of the early 1970s. Uh, I mean, they were entirely, almost entirely young people. Uh, in many ways, Libya was being run by students for a time. Uh, at least that's uh, that's certainly how I felt it when I went to Libya at that time, uh, around 1971-72. Oh, no, sorry. The 17- uh, sorry, I'm getting the wrong dates there. No, When I went to Libya no, around 1979, 1980 and that, that was the time when one was very conscious of, of the, the role of students in, in running so much of the country.
0: The 70s is Gaddafi's first full decade in power and it's seen, I think in quite a positive light by a lot of People. He he embarked down a road which was chosen by many leaders in resource-rich countries. Libya is, of course, a very oil-rich country, which is to fund large infrastructure and welfare projects with oil revenues, which was quite effective in the context of the 70s when oil prices were very high. Real wages rose very quickly. But it was also a period that was marked by an embracing of Sharia law within Libya. I think he closed nightclubs, he closed churches, forbid drinking alcohol in certain places. Do you think Gaddafi was an Islamist? Uh, No, I wouldn't put it like that. Uh, He had
1: his own rather idiosyncratic view about Islam, and certainly his Islamic identity was very important to him. Uh, And those measures which you mentioned, like uh, forbidding alcohol and such like, I mean, they indeed came out of his, his own his own individuality, and uh, I mean it's not surprising that uh, that was the case, given his background. Um, he hadn't grown up uh, really as a as a city boy. Uh, alcohol was really really a, a separate world from him. Identified with parts of the elite who. who uh, were close to the colonial powers, and the, the, those present in Libya in particular. So um, he, he did uh, believe that Libya, as a country with, uh, whose uh, majority by far was Muslim, should uh, adhere to Islamic norms. But then, he, but his relationship with the religious hierarchy within Libya was, was problematic, to say the least. You know, he was doing his own thing; he wasn't uh, coordinating it with, with
0: some wider uh, Islamic hierarchy. It's in the nineteen eighties that Gaddafi's relationship with the West begins to begins to sour quite considerably why does he fall out with the west so badly during the 1980s
1: yes well um during the 1970s of course he had been um i think the 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 western powers the united states in particular saw him as perhaps a better alternative than someone who, who would be, could be identified as a communist or whatever, um, because Gaddafi was as anti-communist as, as he was uh, uh, anti-Western. Um, and so uh, through the period when he and his regime were pressing very hard for uh, changes in oil pricing and played a big part indeed in moving the price of oil up on global markets, um, he, uh, he, he was tolerated. Um, but then towards the end of the 1970s, there were a whole range of issues on which Gaddafi no longer seemed to be so accommodating as far as the West was concerned. And a big uh, change, of course, came about uh, in 1977 with uh, Sadat's visit to Jerusalem with the Camp David Agreement uh, and uh, Camp David Agreement in 1979. And he had certainly a strong rejection of this, uh, a feeling that this was a sellout uh, of the Palestinian cause. So um and and then some of uh, it it was also apparent that some of his international linkages uh I mean he did establish a reasonable relationship with the Soviet Union uh, from the especially from the end of the 1970s um and then there were also uh There also came to be cases where he was supporting movements which were described as being terrorists, and some of them may may have been, and uh, that was impinging on the interests of Western powers. Some of it uh, was done in in, in a a way which um, certainly... Posed a lot of problems. For example, when he started giving um, supporting the purchase of arms by the I- IRA.
0: One of the things that he's best known for in Britain, or at least that he's associated with, is the Lockerbie bombing mm-hmm. in 1988. Um, how big a role did he play in either financing that or um, instigating that awful? event or is his association with it an attempt to discredit him um unfairly by powers that wanted to do so anyway
1: well he um uh, i don't know and uh, it seems to me that that um uh anyone who says that they have a firm conviction on this is is probably um telling a lie um <laughs> Uh, when, when he was overthrown, or when that, that, the revolution in Libya was happening, uh, everyone was saying, now we'll find out the truth about Lockerbie. Uh, you know, it, the, it will become evident exactly what happened. Uh, and Libyan involvement in it, in it would become clear. But of course, that hasn't happened. There's been almost no information, uh, uh, no, no connection, uh, which has been found between Gaddafi uh, and what and what happened in in the bombing uh, of Panam of the Pan Am plane, um, and um, so, so it's. Um, uh, uh, it, it, I mean, and it must be said that um, when the Lockerbie bombing first took place, Libya was not uh, at the top of the suspicions. Uh, at the top of the suspicions was the idea of Iran perhaps working through w- working together with a a Palestinian movement based in Syria. Suddenly, all this changed um, uh, when Iraq evaded, invaded Kuwait in 1990. Uh, and it became rather important for the Western world, for, for the United States anyway, to bring Iran into uh, an alliance or no, not an alliance, but a, a hostile position towards Saddam. Uh, and also to try and bring Syria in as well. Uh, and it was at that time that suddenly the, the finger of suspicion pointed away from Iran and Syria and towards Libya. Uh, and the ju- and uh, then one went through the following nine years, whatever it is, in which uh, Libya was put under sanctions. And then the agreement, which came out in was it, was it signed in nineteen ninety eight, nineteen ninety nine, nineteen ninety eight, I think, at the end, whereby the two Libyans who were suspected of having carried it out uh, were to be tried uh, in in Holland, uh, uh, in Hague, and then the, the rather rather strange judgment which came out of that. Which was that one of them was guilty and one of one of them was not. Although the allegation had been that these two people had been working closely together, uh, and actually, if you read through the judgment, which is a very long judgment, uh, a lot of it seems to be heading towards a non, uh, not guilty, judgment uh, on McGraw-hee. Uh and then it suddenly. Seems to turn round at the end. So yeah, so um, I, I think the uh, what what happened is unclear. How much blame Gaddafi might have had for what happened? There, I mean, it, uh, uh, there is certainly evidence that there had been uh, at least one previous case where there had been Libyan involvement. Um, and so there was the assumption that this followed the same pattern but it, but uh, magrahi of course uh, denied his involvement to the end
0: that's that's really interesting i didn't know the the backstory to that as i said it certainly seems possible that there was definitely a large incentive for the the western powers to to blame Gaddafi for this. Mm-hmm. I, I want to move on to the latter half of his reign. To an outsider who doesn't know very much about him, it seems as if, as his rule continued into the 90s and 2000s, his rule became more cultish and his rule became more dominated by his own personality mm-hmm. than a commitment to Arab nationalism or Islamic democracy or whatever you want to call it. He embraces um, privatisation, for example. Is that a fair assessment?
1: Well, I think it probably is. Um, It it does become more cultish. And uh, he, of course, goes off in directions which had been very different from where he had started. He started off with Arab nationalism. And then he becomes very disillusioned with other Arab countries, especially for their failure to back him uh, over the Lockerbie issue. Um, And his focus of attention is then very much on Africa. Um, And uh, the last, uh, well, let's say, the last 20 years of his life, um, he was putting himself forward as an African leader rather than an Arab leader Uh, and he was was also chopping and changing in terms of his economic uh, policies and his economic alignments as you have mentioned so in the later periods in many ways one gets the impression that he was scrambling around uh, trying to, to, to find the basis on which to maintain himself in power and a basis on, on which to pursue some kind, kind of reasonable policy or at least a policy, no that's not the right way of putting it, a po- policy w- which uh, uh, would would provide the kind of basis on which he, he, he could uh, claim some kind of legitimacy.
0: 2011 is the year that Gaddafi runs out of road, so to speak. Protests erupt, erupt, I think, in the January, February of that year. They occur, of course, in the wider context of the nascent Arab Spring. Mm -hmm. The Tunisian government and the Mubarak government in Egypt had been ousted in in January 2011. Can you give an account of the early few months of the Libyan revolution?
1: Well, yes, it's... um... I mean, uh, uh, it doesn't uh, emerge out of nowhere. Um, I mean, there had been a lot of discontent which had been building up, uh, and there had been incidents of considerable brutality uh, as that involved in the suppression of a riot, as it was called, at a prison in eastern Libya. There was also a feeling that, a fairly widespread feeling within the country that sanctions were now no longer an excuse, uh, but things were still, uh, you know, economic life was still very tight. So why was this? Where was the money going? It didn't seem to be uh, filtering through to the the masses of the population. So, uh, I mean, that, those, Kind of feelings, and 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 also among the uh, intelligentsia, there was uh, there were resentments at at, um, being channeled in directions which they they didn't like. So that that was sort of bubbling up, and uh, so so when uh, demonstrations began um, in Benghazi at the beginning. There there was uh, quite a ground on which uh, they could develop, with people joining. Um, And uh, certainly in the early stage, Gaddafi and the regime uh, made a lot of mistakes in this, um, in terms of of, of, uh, dealing with it. And uh, there was a very, very, um, there was a tendency to think that violence, that the the use of uh, power, military power, would be able to solve this kind of problem. And and in fact, it tended to be the opposite. That tended to, to bring people in opposition together more.
0: The conflict is that, or the conflict that ensues, is punctuated by Western intervention mm-hmm. in the form of uh, bombing campaigns. Mostly, I think, ostensibly to protect Libyan citizens that were in danger of the government's uh, force. William Hague certainly, if you look back at the footage, wanted his moment in the sun. I think so did the French President Nicolas Sarkozy. I don't really want to ask you whether you think Libya would be better off now if Gaddafi was still in power because whenever people ask that question about Saddam Hussein, it it annoys me because it seems that it's asked to deflect from the much more important question of how does the West actually use its power and project itself in, in foreign countries. So I'll ask you this question instead. Do you think it was wrong for the West to intervene in the civil war in Libya?
1: Um, I do, yes. And uh, to some extent, they intervened um, on a false pretext. uh, The United Nations resolution, uh, the Security Council resolution on this, is phrased in terms of coming to the protection and defense, coming to the te- defense of those who were being attacked, um, uh, protecting people who were uh, being being attacked militarily by the regime. Um, and that ground, uh, I think, is a, is a perfectly good ground. Um uh, but it was not actually what was intended uh, on, the, on the Western side. Um, uh, I mean, it seems fairly clear from the beginning uh, that this was, uh, to be ta- was to be taken and was taken as a basis on which to uh, support the opposition and hopefully change the regime, <clears throat> which is what happened. Russia and China both, of course, uh, did they support it or did they abstain? I, I now now forget, I, I should have checked up, up on this beforehand. <clears throat> but the reason why, why they didn't oppose it was precisely be, because it, it, it was not talking about change of regime. It was talking about the defense of uh, civilians, basically, in Libya. Um especially in eastern Libya, but also in Misrata as well. Um, and, and that seemed perfectly reasonable. Um, and uh, my own personal view is that it would have been possible for, uh, for that to have been done without going on to enforcing the change of regime. The change of regime, I think, might have happened in any case But it would have happened much more as a a result of internal processes um, and the need of different elements within Libya to come together uh, and uh, um, have a coordinated response. But the way in which it happened, uh, I think, led on fairly naturally, really, to to the uh, rather sorry state of Libya today in terms of the different factions, the, different, the difficulty in recreating the Libyan state.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it seems like a really awful place to be now, and a really chaotic place to be. Gaddafi is killed in October 2011. He'd been in hiding for much of that year, I think. hmm what happens in the immediate months after his his demise? Uh
1: Galafi of course was murdered. Murdered. <laughs> you say he was killed, but uh, yeah, he he was yeah, yeah, he yeah. was killed <laughs> in clear cold blood in a rather gruesome manner. Um uh sorry, what was the second part of that that question?
0: Well what what are the immediate results of his of his murder?
1: well the the um, immediate results I suppose, is what you see today um, uh, a country uh, which uh, which at the time there there was a wide level of support for a different system and people did want to move on they did want to create a um, a different kind of Libya than Gaddafi had, had been. Uh, overseeing um, which which has gradually deteriorated in terms of the regional divisions uh, and some ideological divisions into what there is today I I mean of course one one mustn't be too pessimistic about the future just at the moment after all there, there are attempts to sort of bring everything together again and Libya, I think, has got a lot of coherence. Um, I mean, it looks it looks uh, uh, it looks strange in in as it's a country with populations wide apart. You know, eastern Libya is a long way from from western Libya, with with a lot of desert in between. Um, and I can tell you, it seems a very long way when one travels over it by car. <laughs> uh, not to speak of the south. Uh, of Libya, but nonetheless, sure. uh, I mean, this is an, an area which which has had a, quite a continuous record historically of, of interaction, and uh, w- the nature of its resources are ones which uh, you know straddle different regions. I'm thinking, in particular, of the oil, of course. So. Uh, I think uh, Libya does have a lot going for it potentially, and it did have a lot going for it in 2011, um, but to me it seems that the, the manner of the removal of Gaddafi has a major, major part of the explanation in what happens later.
0: Something I've seen quite a lot of in the last five years is that Gaddafi's regime was very effective at stopping um, migrant flows across the Mediterranean. I hear that mostly from people on the right of politics, I have to say, but one of the main causes of the... uh, uh, Well, they say that one of the main causes of the surge in migrant numbers crossing that sea in the last decade is that there is no longer a strong government in Libya to control those flows. Is that correct?
1: Right. Well, the second part of that is certainly correct. The the absence of a strong state has meant that it's been relatively easy for um, people smugglers to base themselves somewhere on the Libyan coast uh, under the control of often of um, one militia or another um and to make a lot lot of money out of out of smuggling people to Europe. That is certainly true. However, I don't think the situation under Gaddafi was all that favourable either in this respect. And uh w- what often happened was that when uh Libya had a good relationship with Italy in particular, on the other side of the Mediterranean, and when they'd made some <clears throat> good agreements, well, Italy, yeah, but, but also France, and to some extent Britain as well, uh, migrant flows would be kept under control. They would be stopped. Uh, but then it, when things were beginning to come, to come apart for some reason or another, uh, then migrant boats would start sailing again. Uh, so, so there was quite a there was quite a lot of migrant flow from Libya uh, from before two thousand and eleven, and it went up and down according to the relationship with, uh, between Libya and European nice. countries. And it was often used actually as uh, a means of putting pressure,
0: much in the same way that uh, Erdogan does in Turkey. Yes, yeah, exactly. Just good j- Just as a the final question, as I said at the start of the interview, the Gaddafi era is so long and it went through so many different phases. It's very difficult to find or to sum the entire era up succinctly. He, he does seem like quite a tragic figure in lots of ways because he was somebody who started with motors which are actually quite admirable. <laughs> What do you think of of Gaddafi overall? Do you think that his influence on his country was positive in the end? When you look back at the at the, that era,
1: oh, that's a judgment which I find very difficult to make. Um, I think I think that uh, certainly in the early stages um, there was a lot. He he was sort of bringing together a large part of the Libyan population around a, a sort, sort of common kind of uh, objective, if you like, or common set of ideals. Uh, I mean, especially the, the younger generation, they, they all sort of grew up um, within this framework and felt a lot, a lot of, uh, and, and the sense of Libyan nationalism was very strong. But I think it does become unstuck, uh, especially, oddly enough, after the Lockerbie problem was solved. Uh, During the 1990s, uh, the Lockerbie case uh, was, in many ways, something which created a certain amount of unity among the population. Uh, Libya was being punished by outside powers. The regime was doing its best to resist this. At least that's the, that's the way in which it, it was com- coming coming across. The measures which were being taken, which might have been po- unpopular in normal times, um, were seen as being justified because of what what was being done to Libya. I mean, that, I mean that's that, that's uh, the way in which it was sort of put across. But uh, but after. After 2000, at least, I think there was a there was a sort of loss of sense of direction. Um, uh, there were there were a lot of jokes which were told about about Gaddafi uh, at that time, and one had the feeling in interacting with people within Libya at that time that the respect was going down. Um, I should also say, uh, by the way, that, um, you know, one thinks of Gaddafi as a dictator, or at least many people would see him as a di- dictator, uh, which I dare say he was. But uh, he, the state which he built up in many ways was, was not as tight as one, one had, for example, in Iraq. And I can say here from my personal experience, because I went to see Gaddafi in, in towards the end of 1998, at a time when uh, Libya had not yet accepted the um, Anglo-American proposals on Lockerbie. Uh, and I was asked to go by some parts of the Libyan regime who were interested in trying to trying to persuade. Gaddafi to accept it, and so they thought uh, uh, having a, a friendly, <laughs> a friend of Libya, come and come and speak to Gaddafi might be useful. So, so I I was taken to see him in his uh, <clears throat> in his uh, place in Buhudu, in, uh, in the south of Sirte. Um, and uh, one thing I noticed was was that in going there i was carrying a briefcase with me um and at no stage did anyone ask to see inside the briefcase and we passed through various checkpoints and we were (laughs) waved through um i mean i could have been carrying a bomb or anything and and in many ways it was it was quite a relaxed uh occasion Or, or, or quite a relaxed setting. It, it was nothing like, I mean, I, I also uh, had a meeting with Saddam Hussein, or I took part in a meeting with Saddam Hussein. It was a totally different different thing. Uh, and Gaddafi, more, more or less, he, he liked to argue. So I sat with him for about two hours, and, and, and we argued. And, uh, you know, he, he, um, he, he, he was keen to know other opinions. Uh, It was totally different from the experience with Saddam. And I think part of Saddam's problem was that that nobody could really tell him the truth about what was happening. Gaddafi was certainly open to people telling him the truth. And and certainly in some cases, he quite liked it because it gave him the opportunity to to come back on it and, and make an argument. And, it, and he was an easy person to talk to, actually. Uh, I didn't find, find it difficult at all. So, so uh, I mean, there were many difficult and problematic things about his regime. Uh, but I don't think one should think of it as, as, as being a very tight kind of dictatorship. I should say also, actually, at that time, I used to go to Libya quite often in the 1990s. And, uh, and because I couldn't fly there, I would come in overland through Tunisia. And oddly enough, in uh, going through Tunisia, I always felt, felt very tense, really. There were, there were a lot of roadblocks going down to the Libyan border, uh, which were really where one really felt that um, it, they were really quite tough. Uh, one got to the Libyan border and went across, and there were also a lot of roadblocks where the s- soldiers would be sitting around smoking and just waving <laughs> one through. So, so it it, uh, uh, it wasn't quite the 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 difference which one might have expected.
0: If if I'd have realised you'd actually met him, I'd have definitely asked you about that earlier in the uh, the conversation. <laughs> um, just one last thing, I know I know you're pushed for time do you think if he'd have stepped down in say 2000 he'd be remembered quite fondly
1: um to, to some ex- well um to some extent um but, but one should also remember that for part of the 1980s in the later part of the 1980s economic conditions in in libya were really quite bad um and in the 1990s, they were also bad, but there was a, there was a target to it. There, there you know, there was there, uh, it was possible to blame someone else. I suppose in in 2000s, um, if he had if he had opened up the regime and ensured a a good succession, if you like, not only in a personal sense, but in, in terms of the whole political structure. Then, then perhaps he would have been sort thought, thought of in a kindly kind of way.
0: That's been a brilliant conversation, Tim. Thank you so much for your time. It's very generous of you to come on. I would definitely like to ask you some other time about uh, Saddam Hussein as well, uh, given the uh, the anecdote you've just told. Mm. Um, where can people find your work?
1: Um Oh, gosh, well, well, my CV is on, is for example, on the University of Exeter website, and there, and yeah, or, and people can, of course, email me at my email address. I'm, I'm uh, um, at the moment, I'm uh, attached to Tsinghua University in China. It's probably easier though to contact me through the University of Exeter. Uh, email address and uh, uh, yeah, on, on on Libya, I mean I wrote I a book called uh, uh, Pariah States in inverted commas in the Middle East, which was published around 2001, 2002 and that was about Iraq, Libya and Sudan um, and in that book, I talk quite a lot about the effects of sanctions uh, and uh, about how Libya was affected by sanctions. Uh, so, uh, yeah, the the
0: those things. Excellent. Thank you very much, Tim. You're welcome. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the Hated and the Dead. If you've enjoyed this podcast. Follow it on Spotify or Apple Podcasts to get updates whenever new episodes are released. If you're just on that last stretch of your commute to or from work, or have a spare two minutes, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It's the best way to help the podcast grow.